and he follows these basic patterns of the universe. And so the distinction about consciousness seems to be more, it's about us becoming aware of ourselves. And, you know, the universe is conscious in a certain way. It's intelligent. It resonates as a whole, etc. And we are part of that. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological, the podcast that curates East Asian medicine and methods through the power of conversation. I got an email from a friend the other day. You know the kind. You don't open it up right away because you know it's going to be good, but you don't know how good or in what way. So you leave it unopened for a little while because the anticipation brings its own delight. It was, as expected, a wonderful read. And down toward the bottom, she asked, you keeping okay? You at a crossroads or in the crosshairs? Well, that made me pause. Am I at a crossroads? or in the crosshairs. I'm thinking, how did she know? Know that I was, that both were true. And I wasn't quite sure just how they were true, but the question immediately pinged back a yes, and I started investigating. Here's what I found. Hell yes, I'm at a crossroads. I'm at the crossroads of what got me to this moment and wondering how I'm going to get to the next one. The next one that I imagine has more contentment, skill, compassion, well-being, and cash flow. The crossroads of what got me to here that's worth letting go of, and what to latch on to that will ride me into the future that I dare to imagine. I'm at the crossroad of heaven and earth, navigating what do I want, and is it okay for me to want what I want? I'm in the middle of the vital mix of ideal and practical application, the calling of heaven in the muddled limits of Earth. How many songs have you heard about crossroads? Stories, myths, memes. It's a potent archetypical image, and for a good reason. The crossroads connect. They connect ideal with current situation, wishful thinking, and writing the rent check. It's the portal between being and becoming spirit and matter. It contains the potency and possibility that choices hold just before the wave of potential collapses into the particle of committed choice. It's Tian Di Ren. It's the interplay of Shen, Yi, and Jir. Am I at a crossroads? I am. You might be as well. And crosshairs? Well, who isn't in our postmodern, post-COVID everything fluid and how dare you say something that disturbs me moment. Yeah, I'm in the crosshairs, but not just because of the volatile cultural arguments. I reckon living creatures are always in some kind of crosshairs. We're wired to watch out for danger because something might want to eat us or off us in an attempt to protect itself. Am I in the crosshairs? I imagine I am. And I know this because I've got my own crosshairs on those who seem dangerous to me. And I'm squarely in the middle of the crosshairs of my own dark imaginings and unproductive self-criticism. So, as my friend asked, you keep it okay? It helps to know that someone cares about you and reaches out with an inquiry. So, check in with those you care about and ask about the crossroad or crosshairs they're struggling with. 
They will for sure have a story for you. East Asian medicine looks to nature for solutions. We look for principles and processes that we can leverage to help improve health and well-being. Maybe use those principles to steer our lives because we all need a map and a guiding star as well. The fundamentals of our medicine are evocative and inspiring. They bespeak a kind of order, and yet our world is so ever-changingly chaotic and unpredictable. It's not easy being the Zhen in between Tian and Di, and yet, beyond our single human perspective, there is a larger order, and that's the thread that runs through this conversation with Edward Neal. We'll get into that in a moment. Stay with us. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of the solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash geological to learn how. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. 
Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code Geological at the time of sign up for a one month grace period on your new Jane account. Welcome to Shop Talk. In this portion of the podcast, we are bringing you roughly 15 minutes of practical clinical methods, perspectives, and advice that has its work boots on. This section is all about practical material that you can begin to investigate the next time that you walk into clinic. Additionally, visit the show notes page for supporting materials from this week's guest on Shop Talk. All right, roll up your sleeves. Let's get to work. Hi, I'm Tracy Stewart, and today for Shop Talk... I thought I'd share with you some interesting ways to look at the batsa, how you might use it, and how Chinese astrology is both similar to and different from Chinese and other East Asian medicine. So I want to talk about putting the batsa into context. So the context is called the five arts. Medicine is one of the five arts, and that's acupuncture and herbology and diet, actually, even though we don't prescribe diets. Another one is called mountain, and this is how man is with nature. So this is meditation and martial arts. Divination, which is the practice of numerology and predicting the, the, the future. And the I Ching is in this category. And physiognomy, which is about appearances and face reading is in this category, and also feng shui. The Batsa is in what's called the life category, and the Batsa includes other forms of astrology that are more about, you know, the planets and the stars. But the Batsa itself is called the Pillars of Destiny, and we'll talk more about that. I wanted to talk a little bit about how I got sort of started with all of this Chinese stuff. It really started with the I Ching and, you know, throwing the I Ching almost every day to see, you know, what was in store. (laughs) And I became sort of fascinated by the wisdom that I found there. And when I learned about the, the Batsa, it was similar to that, you know, reading about the animals on placemats in Chinese restaurants. <laughs> but it became, became much deeper than that. So I want to talk more about the, uh, the Batsa and how you might use it, even if you don't want to use it for what I do, which is, you know, prescribing diets for people. The Batsa itself can be used in a lot of different ways. And one of them is in determining the Harari point. I know five element people use the Harari point all the time. This is when you treat the earth point on an earth meridian at, during the earth season at the earth time of the day. So it gives it sort of extra potency. But what I found is that 
I didn't really know when the seasons were. I had no idea until I learned about the Batsa. For instance, by the time this is um, recorded, we will be in the season of the goat. It's July. After July 7th, we'll be in goat. And goat is hot, dry summer earth. So if you're just thinking like most people do, July is summer, you might do the Harari of fire at that time of year. Well, it's not fire time, it's earth time. So it's important to really get that right. And the only way to get that right is to read the Batsa. When I first started learning about it, I was surprised by the seasons because the seasons don't start, you know, summer does not start at the summer solstice in the Chinese calendar. That's the middle of the summer because it's not about the temperature. It's about the movement of qi. Yeah. So, so just realizing how I had not gotten this right, and I started studying what this was about. Most of all, you have to remember that the batsa is a calendar. That is what it is fundamentally. It's a solar lunar calendar, and it's very, very accurate. So this does not start like the Chinese uh, lunar calendar where it starts in the spring sometime, January, February, it changes all the time. It always starts around January 4th, not exactly. And it changes by maybe a day or two, by minutes, by hours. And it's adjusted, this calendar is adjusted by minutes every two weeks. This is not like the Gregorian calendar, which is adjusted every four years by a day. So when it's off, it's way off. <laughs> so it's so accurate, NASA uses this calendar because it describes what's happening with the actual sun and moon and the earth. The calendar itself is made up of four pillars, the day, the hour, the month, and the year. And mostly we know the year. We usually know the year of our birth. It's not always the most important part. Probably one of the most important parts of the Batsa is the interactions between the pillars. The way we talk about, you know, Chinese philosophy has all of the five arts have the same things in common. They start with, number one, the Tao. Nothing to talk about there. Number two, yin and yang. Number three, the interaction of yin and yang. Number four, the four directions and the seasons. Now we're starting to get more and more of the emphasis of the Batsa. And then when you have put the earth in with the directions, you have a pivot, a pillar on which things turn and you have movement. So then you have come to the five phases and the interaction of the five phases. So like the three, many things happen at the odd numbers. So going further on, we come to the, the numbers of 10, which is the upper part of the batsa, the 10 heavenly stems. So this is the five elements doubled. So in man, in medicine, those, those elements are the liver and the gallbladder, yang, wood, yin, wood. In the Batsa, they're more about the pure energy of, say, water, like oceans, as opposed to, say, ponds, or streams, as opposed to rivers. So, but it's the same sort of energy of what wood is in a person, but it's not necessarily organs, right? So those are very similar, but the bottom part of the Batsa chart is the 
earthly branches, the 12 earthly branches. So a big difference happens here. In the 12 earthly branches in a human being, you have the meridians. And the meridians for fire are doubled. So the reason the meridians for fire are doubled is because we're talking about the divine, the Shen of heaven that lives in every human being. And so what happens with the heart is emphasized so that there are actually four meridians specifically to the, you know, the fire of the heart. This is not the case in the Batsa. Fire is not doubled. In the Batsa, the earth is doubled because it's about time and place. And the earth becomes so important because it's the rhythm that holds life together. It's the cyclical rhythm of life. So it's about the seasons changing in a regular fashion, month to month, year to year, always the same, day to day, two-hour time period to two-hour time period. And between each season, there is earth. So after you have the salt winter solstice, you go into the cold, wet winter earth, transition into the spring. And then you do the spring, and then you go into spring earth, which is warm and, and wet, right? And then you go into summer earth after summer, hot and dry. So this cycle is pivoting around the earth element. So one of the things I'd like to sort of share with people that information that I've kind of garnered about the seasons is people often say, oh, you know, I feel like it's autumn today. It's hotter than Hades. And I just feel like it's autumn for some reason. And you look up the bots and you go, yeah, it's autumn. <laughs> right. But it's still hot. And it's it's actually because of the energy. We feel the energy shifting and you can actually go out and start pruning. If you have a lot of pruning to do, you can start pruning, say, the camellias that, you know, start blooming early. You can, you can also do things like after the holidays, we have this tradition of setting New Year's resolutions. Well, we come into earth after the holidays, cold, wet winter earth. And... When that happens, what, what you get is this energy that's like an ox. Walk to the end of the road, turn. Walk to the end of the road, turn. Walk to the end of the road, turn. It's not time to start anything new. Stick with your ruts, for heaven's sakes. It's winter. You have to survive. And we as people didn't have food often at those times of year. Nothing is growing. You just hunker down. Don't start anything new. Forget New Year's resolutions. When you come to February, you're going to want to just let go of things and change things. You just won't be able to help yourself. It's not like you'll start resolution. You'll just let go of stuff and say, I want to do something new. Right? That's natural, normal order of things. So one of my advice from you from the Batsa, don't make New Year's resolution. <laughs> Give yourself a break. Everything in the universe is working against that. Just don't do it. <laughs> I know that there's a lot that could be learned from the Batsa way beyond that, but it's useful for so many things in life, from how we do acupuncture to how we garden and to how we beat ourselves up about doing things that we shouldn't be doing anyway. So don't do it. And of course, there's 
a tremendous amount to learn. And you can find some of the this information on my website, which is chibalance.net. That's qibalance.net. And uh, you can learn both about the Batsa and Korean Sasang there. Uh, you can sign up for my mentorship program, which is starting in early August, August 5th. Or you can just get your own dietary analysis done. And you'll also find out a lot about your curriculum. It's in there and what you, what you have to work with to either manifest your destiny or succumb to fate. So thank you for your time. I'm Tracy Stewart at ChiBalance.net. Ed Neal, welcome back to Geological. Hi, it's great to be back with you. Always fun to talk with you. You've got this whole Neijing thing going on. You know, the Neijing, like the oldest book we have on medicine. Medicine, cosmos, human beings. You know, it starts off with, well, back in the good old days, people had it better than we do now. Now what do we do? Does that sound familiar? It does. I mean, oh my gosh, there's so much there. Although I'm not sure there was ever the good old days. I think that's one of our myths of Chinese medicine. There were, you know, back in the ancient times of China, there was deforestation and warfare. And we sometimes I think we go into Chinese medicine because the modern world is a little too hard for us and we want to kind of go to a safe place and live and do Tai Chi all day and eat mushrooms and commune with nature and so forth. But when you look historically, that actually wasn't the case, probably ever. But the thing that did happen was that there was a time when people were closer to the patterns of nature, and they understood them in a different way. But it's very interesting how that's described in the Neijing, and it's in the first chapter of the Suwen. They talk about the different sages and they talk about the first level of sages who lived an immersive life. That means they were of nature, and they didn't even quite understand there was a difference, perhaps. And so, for example, that might be the experience of the plants in my garden or something like that. And then there was a next generation of people who became a little more separate from nature, but still practiced apart and followed the patterns of nature. And as they go down through the generations, they get closer and closer to the cultures around them. And they're still sages. And then there's a period of the people after the sages, which would probably have been people maybe 2,000 years ago, <laughs> which they call the modern people. You know, like the nowadays people don't practice these things. That was probably about 2,000 years ago. But in, your, in their descriptions, they sound just like modern people in a certain way. They say, you know, they didn't live with regular rhythms. They didn't know how to stay out of the heat and come in when it was cold. And they um, got drunk and entered the bedroom and, you know, dispersed their essence and so forth. They lived a chaotic life and they, they also pursued shiny objects. So right away in chapter one of the Neijing, there's a distinction between whether there's two basic patterns of living that they model for us. And one is you might call Shen-based living or heart-based living. And the other is living by following the pursuit of shiny objects. Shiny objects means things that stimulate your nervous system or give you a momentary thrill, which would be your cell phone today, of course. And uh, it's, it's kind of like a pocket anti-Shen device slot slash slot machine. So that means that 
you know, in the Neijing, Shen is the basis of all healthcare, and they tell you that all over and over again. The number one thing, don't ever forget it, is Shen is the basis of everything. What does that mean? It's a, it's a configuration of space-time where yin and yang breaths come into balance, and when they form a dancing partner in a certain way, like yin and yang are doing the tango, you might say, <laughs> and they're, they're in relationship, light emanates from the middle of that relationship at the intersection. And that light is what gives coherence to our body and organizes the universe and is the basis of healthcare because all human illnesses are first problems with biological co coherence. That's the starting point for all human illnesses. And that occurs when these breath patterns become out of balance and Shen stops emanating. So from a point of view of the original writings of Chinese medicine, the goal of every healthcare intervention is to restore these breath patterns so that light can illuminate. So acupuncture was originally a type of surgery, didn't really care about points that much. It wasn't about point actions, but it was a type of surgery that regulated the ecology of the tissue planes of the body so that the breath patterns of yin and yang came back into balance and light started to emanate again. So in the two ways of living, the two choices we have in life, one is to live from the shen that's in our heart. What does that look like? So for example, if you oh, have a decision to make, should I do this? Should I not do that? Should I stop seeing this person? You know, should I take this job? Right. Should I pull out my I Ching and have it give me some help? Because I'm not sure how to make a decision between two possibly good things. Right, and the I Ching will tell you what are the prevailing patterns at the time. Um, that's what the I Ching does, because it's, the book itself is embedded in those patterns. When you drop the arrow sticks, they fall according to those patterns. That's the science of the I Ching, and then we read it through the, the text. But if we're making that decision from a Shen-based uh, perspective, it means if I'm faced with a decision, I'm first going to go into my heart, and I'm going to still myself. And I'm going to feel the light that's emanating in my heart. And it can be, it's kind of like a tuning fork or a resonance pattern. And then I'm going to compare what I'm trying to decide with that resonance. And if it's dissonance to that resonance, I don't do it. And if it's consonant with that resonance, I do do it. That's also the meaning of virtue. For example, in the character Da and the Tao Te Ching, the main, it doesn't mean like you just do a bunch of good things and you're virtuous. That the definition of virtue is where heaven is within me is virtue. It means where Shen is emanating. The other way of, of <clears throat> living is to just be distracted by things that kind of stimulate our nervous system. Shiny objects. Shiny objects. Those always promise a certain experience, but they never deliver. They leave you exhausted and sick. So, for example, like if you're trying to get likes in social media, that's a, that's a shiny object in a certain way. Or if you walk down in Times Square in New York and you see every billboard flashing at you, those are all shiny objects. There's a huge amount of shiny objects in the world today, and they're all flashing and tr trying to get your attention and so forth. So it's a real challenge for us today. Yeah, I don't know, remember what the question was, but I think that was an interesting conversation. <laughs> well, okay, so we, we're starting off with Cosmos, I think. Oh, right, right, right. The good old times. That's right, the good old times. Because you know, I agree with you in this, that it's easy to look back into the past with a sense of nostalgia. It, it, it's almost impossible not to. 
and easy to look back at the time. Oh, it was more simple back. Remember back before cars, the air was better? Well, I don't know. You had a bunch of horse crap in the street. Right. Maybe not better. Oh, back in the day, people knew how to take care of themselves. Did they? How do we know that? You know, I, I know for sure in this life, having antibiotics saves lots of people, right? I think people in the past might have appreciated the help of antibiotics. You should get down and thank the Lord Jesus every day that you live in a time of anesthesia and antibiotics, because it was not a pretty sight. No, not at all. So, so there's that. I like where you started with, you used the phrase immersive life. And, and I'm wondering if we go back, look at what the, the Neijing was saying about, about humans, critters, it starts with immersive life. It sounds like there's not really an external consciousness. There's not really a sense of separateness yet. There's not this bicameral mind that we have that actually talks to itself. Right. So this is a very interesting story. And it, it, it comes back to why was the Neijing written, you know, 300 BCE and not in 1948? And why did they do it like a podcast? <laughs> do it over the conversations? Yes. That's very interesting, too. And why did they not just put their names down on it and say, I wrote this? And they said that Yellow Emperor wrote it and all that sort of thing. We don't know who wrote it because they did this. It's very interesting, though, if you look at uh, this process. So about 10,000 years ago, you know, our life started when the Ice Age started to melt. And, and heaven appeared, basically, on Earth, which was the blossoming of this golden time we call the Holocene era. And languages started to develop, and agriculture started to develop, and people started to live together. How revolutionary was that? Oh, that was... The language part was like, it changed everything because all of a sudden, before uh, or a long time ago, we were living an immersive life just like the animals probably. Then about, so these people are still, they have one foot in the natural world of that immersive world, but this new world is developing. And then about 600 BCE to 300 BCE, you see this flourishing you see it in Greece, you see it in China, pretty much the same kind of thing. These flourishing of ideas, the new kinds of science, the idea of what a science is. And in China, they were looking at the natural world very carefully in scientific terms, but they were still much closer to that immersive life than we were. And they were also not living in cities with iPhones. They were living in, you know, nature with agricultural societies and so forth. So they still were kind of close. They were closer and it was all new. And so they were developing all these new stories. And the Neijing itself is a scientific textbook. It's one thing you don't find in the Neijing is stories about ghosts or ancestors or things like that. It's a scientific look at nature. And they saw right away that nature is actually governed by patterns. This, there's basically two worlds. Maybe we talked about this last time, but this is kind of a key theme of the Neijing that our experience derives from two worlds. You know, like the Tao Te Ching, first chapter, it says the Tao that can be known to us through our mind. is not That's not the Tao. And if you hear the, the name of it, that's not the name of it. The world without names, which means without language, creates the world, the patterns of everything. And the world with words, with language, creates all the details. 
And if you want to know about the first world, you have no desire. And if you have desires, you will see the boundaries of things, the detailed world. Wow. If you have desires, you will see the boundaries. You will see the detail. Without desire, can I say that you get a glimpse of the wholeness? Well, it's like this. Imagine a cloud floating in the sky. And you lay on the grass and you look up at the sky and you see the clouds and it's turning. That is the Tao. Because the, the actual definition of the Tao, there's a technical definition, and it is the way nature moves in the space between heaven and earth. They have a different name for what does in space and under the ground and so forth. So if you lay down, it's not that you can't talk about the Tao. It's just that if you have an idea of it, that's not what it is. And if you give it a name, that's not what it is. So some people always say, oh, that means you can't even talk about it, which is not true because the whole Tao Te Ching then talks about it. Well, you can talk around it. You can look at different facets of that gem, I suspect. It, well, it's like if you look at a cloud and you see it's turning, that is the Tao. And basically, if you want to live with the Tao, you live with the patterns that are turning that cloud or making the water flow and so forth. That's all that means. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's all that means? <laughs> That's all that means. But imagine like, so now you're living like a cloud and when it blows one way, you move one way. That's living without desire. It's like when the Tao Te Ching says, Water has the highest virtue. It goes wherever the patterns go, and it has no agenda, etc. It can be down in the mud. It can be up in the sky. And that means having no desire. But say all of a sudden I come along, and, and I decide I want to, um, you know, become a banker or something. And now I'm kind of marching against all those patterns to get my goal. That's having a desire. Now, what they say about that is really interesting. It's not that one is better than the other. They're both parts of the world. They're different. And they also say in that first chapter, the Tao Te Ching, these two worlds, the world we live in of things and objects and desires and cell phones and the world of patterns that makes everything, they actually come from the same source, but we give them different names. So what they're saying is that one's not better, but there's basically two worlds. And there's the world of patterns that we don't see that actually creates and rules everything. And then there's the expressions of those patterns which we live in. If you only live in the, the second world of things and patterns and, you know, illnesses and tumors and pneumonia, then you're kind of, you're always walking around blind. It means you're always looking at the results of something, but not the actual causes. And so our healthcare, whether you're looking at Western medicine or, you know, the vast majority of Chinese medicine, we're trying to deal with these results from causes that we don't understand. Right. People come to us because something is not going well in their life. That's a definite thing. That is a detail. And the agreement of medicine, at least in the modern world, is I'm going to help you with that detail. Right. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's, by the way, that's called a branch treatment in the Neijing. The root treatment is to treat the pattern. The branch is the expression. So if someone comes in and they have COVID, for example, and they have a fever and they're going into respiratory arrest, that's a branch you know, part of the illness. The primary cause is the disruption of patterns. But at the time, you know, if they're in the if I'm in the hospital treating them, I'm not going to focus on the root. I'm going to focus on the branch. I'm going to take down the fever. I'm going to try and keep them off the ventilator. It's not that 
like in the Tao Te Ching, it's not one is better than the other. But if you only understand one, you're kind of um, lost. And in Chinese, we have this, there's a term called the Hutu Chong. And the Hutu Chong, Chong is a worm. Huli Hutu, it's like confused and uh, all upside down in a mess. It's like the befuddled worm, basically, who's out way out on the edge of a tree. Imagine Chinese medicine as a 2,000-year-old tree. And it has this huge root system and all these. But you're actually this worm kind of like moving your head around, trying to eat the leaf, whatever's right in front of you. That's all you can kind of see. And you can't really see the whole pattern. So when we only are looking at the details, we're confused about things. We still do good. You know, we have herbs that treat things. We have medicines that treat things. It's not that they're not helpful. It's just that we're missing half of the equation. We're missing the tree that we're on. Right. And we're missing the original cause and pattern of things. We're trying to deal with the details that arise from those patterns. And in the Neijing, they differentiate. The Shang way of treating means the upper. Shang means the upper or in the past um, or the patterns that come from heaven. And then there's the Tzu way, which means the common way. And they don't say one is better than the other. They just say there's two ways, basically. And the Shang means you basically understand the patterns of the cosmos that create everything, and you understand how those come into form illnesses, and they, they guide your treatment. And the Su means you're dealing with the form. So, for example, the swelling of the elbow or the COVID in the lungs or the tumor in the liver or something like that. It would be the branch way in a certain way. So originally, Chinese medicine was very much focused on the first world of patterns. And they thought that was everything, pretty much. Because if you understand the patterns, you understand all the manifestations. But if you just look at the manifestations, you're the Hutu Chang. Essentially, you don't know where they came from. Okay, so I want to put a pin in this for a second. If we understand the pattern, does that really mean we understand all the details? Yes. I mean, given our human limitations, we're always in our own stories. We have limited perceptions, limited skills. Exactly. Exactly. This kind of gets back to what we were talking about in the beginning. You're talking about the immersive life. I suspect the immersive life doesn't really have stories as much. No. Going back to that story, that's very interesting. Because if you say we were living in an immersive time, then around, you know, and back in the Shang days, you know, 2000 BCE, it was all about deities. You know, it wasn't about people. And, um, Shen actually was a deity back then. It wasn't a concept of nature. But then there was this thing that happened around 600 BCE. So about 600 to 300 BCE, there was this golden flowering time and in both Greece and China. And what, what is, what's happening? People are becoming aware of themselves in a different way. And that is in large part due to language. Language is a key player in this thing that we call consciousness. Without language, our idea of consciousness would be much different. And the thing about when we talk about consciousness is that when we most people talk about consciousness, they're talking about self-referential awareness. So, you know, and so the idea is the universe conscious, am I conscious? What we're really talking about is I am aware of myself. You know, and that's a big, that's an important discriminator because, for example, is a plant conscious? Well, it responds to the environment. It has a plan. It, you know, it seems to thrive or not thrive. It's sentient in a certain way. 
It doesn't make a, a retirement account. It doesn't plan for a retirement account, you know. No, but it but it does flower and seed. Right. And and it follows these basic patterns of the universe. And so the distinction about consciousness it seems to be more it's about us becoming aware of ourselves. And you know, the universe is conscious in a certain way. It's intelligent, it resonates as a whole, etc. And we are part of that, but we are a part that suddenly became aware of ourselves and started telling stories about ourselves. Ed, you're telling the Eden story here. Yes, exactly. Adam and Eve. This is the Adam and Eve story. What does it mean when they were naked? They were not aware of themselves. When they ate from the tree of of knowledge, what was that? They became aware of themselves. All of a sudden, they they were embarrassed, for example, and they fell from heaven. What does that mean? They stopped living in an immersive way. Now, is that a bad thing? Not really, because our lives are expressions of the universe recreating itself upon its original patterns. So like everything in our life is actually a a result of a natural pattern, which we would not call bad. Like if the wind blows one way and then it blows another, do we say the first one was good, the second one was bad? No. Depends on if you're in a boat and where you're trying to go. Right. It depends on the observer, not the wind. That's really important. And so, but what has our struggle been and why are we at this place with climate change and um, at the place we're at? We are struggling to try and understand what it means to have self-referential awareness in an immersive world of patterns, you know? And here's the problem in modern times. It's not that being aware of yourself is bad. This is just an example of the universe recreating its patterns, you know? It's what is your orientation to that understanding? So that means, and and we really have, this is a crisis at the moment, because especially with not to harp on cell phones and, you know, social media and the internet, But what is the story of all of those devices? You are the center of the world. And and it's all about you. And that is kind of an illness pathway. That's That's a diseased way of thinking. It's fine to be aware of yourself and then to understand your small place in the vastness of this beautiful cosmos. That's another thing. So I can still be aware of myself but understand that the world is not about me. And I'm in this huge dance and pattern and symphony of motions of which I am also a part. And I can participate in that beauty. And here's the thing about people. The more they think the world is about them, the less happy they are. And the more they think the world is not about them, the more um, satisfaction they have with life. So right now, this is a real crisis for us. I've heard someone saying, I can't even remember who it is, something to the effect of, if you're depressed, well, stop thinking about yourself and go do something for someone else. You'll feel a lot better. That should be your general orientation in life. Yeah. And that, you know, people who I've worked as a physician now forever and seen a lot of people die and, you know, there's the people who are pretty satisfied at the end of their life and the people who are not. And the people who are not satisfied in it, you know, uh, they are often people who 
live for themselves and the people who are ready to move on and were very satisfied are people who live for others. That doesn't mean that we don't take care of ourselves, you know, or that we give everything away and then get sick and impoverished. Well, I mean, look, if you want to, if you want to be helpful to others, you need to have a pool of resources. Right. So if you go back to that idea of Shen, like for example, that, that light emerges from your heart. It's also where our experience of love comes from, our heart, you know, in a certain way. But love does not mean to give all your devotion, externalize all your experience into loving something else. Shen means it first resonates in your own body. And its first job is to love you. You know, the first the first job of your heart is to send love and Shen and illumination and inspiration to you. And it's only when you have that that you can offer it to others. So I think you're talking about the Shaoyan axis here. The kidney and the heart. This is this is something I picked up from from the Sa'am tradition. The kidney is seen as fire within the water. And it's very it, it's it's care of self. It's what keeps us here. It's self-referential. It's even in TCM, you know, we say the kidney is, you know, dramatically important in, in holding the Jing. And it lets us take care of ourselves. It's about self-love. And the heart, the other side of the Shaoyan access, about love out in the world into others, the fire of the fire that goes out. So we have the fire in the water for self, fire in the fire that goes out. One without the other doesn't work as well. Yeah, I would agree with a lot of that, and but say it in a different way. So from a nature point of view, you know, everything is about nature. I mean, this became so clear in my 20 years of translating. They compare the body to a plant over and over again, and they just, you know, the stems and branches are all about plants growing in nature and rivers flowing in nature and so forth. So when we look at the kidney and the hard axis from that point of view, we're really talking about the condensation of breath, you know, which happens in winter when it comes into your interior and it goes down into your pelvis. And as it condenses, it changes its space-time rhythm. So it's its time rhythm. So it actually slows and starts to become more material. And that's where we go in winter. That's where you should go to winter and nighttime. So it's your it's our root. And every breath in the universe has a root out, out of which motion comes from. And in that in the organ sense, that's our kidney. And then in the summertime, it comes out through our heart. And so, and that is like the flowering of a plant in the summer. And so when you said communion and all those things, I, I think that's very similar in that way. And when we look at, we're basically comparing everything to the patterns of what happens in a plant through the seasons. So moving back and forth from the root out into the expression, what's the summertime expression of a plant? It's to show beauty in communion. You know, whereas the northern route is to be private and sequester and store, but also the northern route is where breath regenerates from. So when it comes back down into the root, it condenses that yin, but also it builds that fire we talked about with the kidney. And it's the fire that's going to respond to the sun in the springtime that's going to start moving back towards the sun and moving out through the liver system and back through the heart and then express in communion and beauty in the in the summertime. So I think it's similar, but we would use more analogies of nature, perhaps. Communion and beauty. 
I've heard a lot of people in Chinese medicine talk about the summer season. Flourishing, that comes to mind. But communion in beauty, I don't think I've heard anyone describe it quite that way. I'd like to know more about that. Well, like my, uh, my yard's going crazy right now. It's springtime, right? And what is it doing? All the things that were underground in the winter are moving out. In springtime, they start to poke their head out. In the summertime, they're all there. Here, world, here I am. I am a rhododendron. I am a, you know, maple tree. I am a dogwood. Here I am. Here is my beauty. And it's not just for me. It's to share it with all the plants around it. So another thing about our time, right? What that means also, it's interesting. It means we should have a private space and a public space. You know, one of the other things about social media and you when you post every experience and every thought you have is you do not have a private space. But private space means moving with nature. It means when I go back to my root, that's not something I share with everyone. You know, that's a private space. And if I don't have the private space, I can't express the beauty and communion in the summertime. For example, this is really interesting. We're working with artists right now and art students trying to change how art, artists learn by using patterns of nature. It's a very interesting project. We have some good artists in our class because the artistic process follows this exactly too. So you can produce art for money. That's one thing you can have technical skills, that's fine. But if you're doing art art, what it means is that you first go to your Northern aspect and you wait for an impulse of motion, you know, and you don't, Put a limit on that. You don't try and say, I want to make this project so it will sell to that person. You wait for the impulse of motion. When the impulse of motion starts to move, then you midwife it. In springtime, the nature, or with children, it's the same. The nature of what they're going to be is not yet clear. They're kind of pointing their head out. The sprouts are coming out. You don't really know what it's going to be. It's like that if you're a painter, for example. You feel the impulse, and then you midwife it. And you say, you know, it's like any project. You start one way, and then you realize that's not the right way. And then you go another way, and then you erase something, and you do it. Because you're trying to figure out what it is, right? You're trying to figure out what it is. I want to underscore that, because there is such a joy when you're really into something, when you've really got your teeth into it, and something's coming through, that trying to figure out what it is is the tasty part. So often in this world, we're looking at, okay, what's the result going to be? Give me my promised result. It's all that way now. It's all about, everybody's like a marketing agency for an ad of one. You know, it's like I'm my own ad agency, marketing my brand. That's a real problem. This is not about art or social media. This is about how nature breathes and how nature breathes. Our body is built on nature's breath and it is what it keeps us healthy second by second. And how we, we live with that. If you want to say, how do you live with the Tao, the Tao, you entrain yourselves to the patterns of nature. That means like here, it's 1043 in the morning right now. Nature is, has woken up and it's opening up, but it's not at its full noontime expression, right? In the afternoon, things will start to revert. In the evening, they will return back to their root. So in the old days, when they were talking about living with nature, they were saying, follow those patterns, because our goal is not that we breathe, but nature breathes us. 
That should be your goal, that nature is breathing you and you're relaxing, right? But to do that, you have to entrain. One of the problems with the cell phone, for example, that I often say is it has no rhythm. And a Wi-Fi signal has no rhythm. It has no modulating rhythms. It's just a constant. If you look at a Wi-Fi signal, for example, and it has no fluctuation. It doesn't care if it's four o'clock in the morning or three o'clock in the afternoon or it's winter or summer or spring. And we are rhythm-based people. So when we entrain ourselves, entrainment is a very powerful way that we live with the world around us. But you have to be very careful what you entrain to. So very, very quickly, the cell phone can be something you entrain to. And now it's taking all your time. And you have get the black circles under your eyes and you look a bit crazy. And, you know, uh, it's not that cell phones are bad, by the way. They're just tools. Hello, everyone. Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of yang, the primal reservoir of yang which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of yang chi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at ancecilsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. They're, they're really helpful tools. I would also suggest, from what little I understand of networking protocols from a previous lifetime, they are entrained. The internet is entrained. There are signals going back and forth. There's pings going back and forth. There are frequencies. They're very high and they're very fast. But they don't change with the day or the seasons, though. They don't. They don't go to sleep at night and they don't kind of stretch in the morning and have their tea and then. No, they don't. They're not biological rhythms. Right, and so this is this is like with AI. This whole thing is like the question is what do we do with these things and are they serving deeper human values you know uh, like this one question is do you work for your phone or does your phone work for you okay i want to i want to go back to a question from maybe 10,000 years ago just imagine being a person 10,000 years ago and noticing that my children are using this thing called language in a way that i don't use it I wonder if that was a, a moment of revolution and there was a whole aspect of our consciousness as people that, that were kind of scratching our heads and going, I don't, actually, we didn't have an eye maybe to say, I don't know where this is going. Some kind of a, a, a shift in consciousness. Could it be, Ed, Neil, that we are in a moment where our human consciousness is going through some kind of a phase change? Oh, I think abso absolutely. I think I think it's always been the 
the situation back to the beginning of time that, you know, children always rebelled against their parents and their parents never understood their children and they were always doing something different, you know, perhaps. There was that aspect of being children. But I I think, you know, our story of the last, you know, since the 1600s, really, the Industrial Revolution and so forth, has been a story of creating very powerful tools without always having the wisdom to manage them. God, how can you have the wisdom if you've never um, confronted them or had to deal with them? You know, one of the amazing things about our tools is they shape us in ways that we could not possibly imagine when we're in the midst of creating a tool that is being created because it's solving an immediate problem. Right. And, it, you know, when I look at most people using their cell phones, if I'm, you know, at the airport or wherever, I see that most people work for their cell phones. It's not the other way around, like the feeding and caring of the cell phone, where to plug it in, and you know, how to use the apps. And it's really, you're changing all your behavior to nourish the cell phone, basically. And But it can be the other way around. It can be a tool. Like I use technology. I'm so thankful, you know, to translate ancient texts. As a matter of fact, this whole Neijing revival is based on the fact that the early texts were put on computer databases 20 years ago, 30 years ago. And that led to probably one of the biggest revolutions in Chinese medicine history of the last 2,000 years. Because all of a sudden, uh, we could look at language in an entirely different way and study character meaning in an entirely different way. Like in the old days, you would memorize it, the text, and then you would work with a teacher, and they'd tell you what it meant, how to put it into practice, perhaps. But what was hard to do, you know, if we talk about the character Shen, for example, you know, what was all of a sudden very easy to do when I started to translate 20 years ago, was I could just take the character Shen and put it into a database and see the 233 instances of it in the Neijing. But not only in the Neijing, all early texts are on the database. The Tao Te Ching, Zhuangzi, all those texts, right? So I can put it into those texts too then I can translate all of those 233 passages, which is what I did, uh, which takes some time, and then study, like, what is what do they have in similar? What's running through this these passages? Um, then come up with a tentative idea, then put it through secondary research confirmation steps. Do, do I see this pattern in nature? Is it consistent with the way it was used in other texts of the time? Does it lead to significantly better clinical outcomes? Does it make sense with the body, etc.? And then I have a very new definition, and then I can use that definition to retranslate the text. That's called classical text archaeology. That's the method I developed over the years to deal with this large amount of information. When you do that, you see that the original story of Chinese medicine is very different. It's much more complex. It's much more elegant. It's much more efficacious in the clinic. It makes sense. It's tied to the natural world and the cosmos in a wonderful way. But it's very different than the world we have in Chinese medicine today. I am, I am struck, <laughs> again, with the technology. I also like technology. And I also like to turn my cell phone off, like off, off, because I like to show it who's boss. And I like to remind myself that I'm in charge of this. It's not in charge of me. I, I actually put some practices in place that way. 
because I love it as a tool and I know how it can run me ragged at the same time. So I'm very keen on the way that you're using the tool. You can go through and look at how the character Shen is used in different places and trying to cotton a meaning out of that based on context. And then then you do this next step. You take it and see how that plays out now and you see how it plays out in your clinic. Can you give me an example of, of how you've taken something that you've gotten archaeologically, so to speak, and how that shows up in your clinical practice? I can give you three. I mean, it's changed everything. I, I would say, like, people come to the Neijing material and they think they're going to learn a few tricks and, you know, new pulse diagnosis. And it's like, a no, it's like a completely new re-understanding of Chinese medicine, what it is. That's why we say we're retelling the story from the ground up. I'll give you three examples. One is the example of Shen. The definition of Shen, if you do that text archaeology, by the way, this is a tentative. This is still a research definition. It can get modified and improved over time. By the way, this is tentative. (laughs) No, no, I love it. It, It's great. You are working exactly like a scientist works. Yes, and this is the basic science of Chinese medicine. We do not have a basic science at the moment, like cancer care has genetics research, for example. Uh, we have opinion and things people said, and you know maybe you read it in a book, and so that's not science. That's not scholarship, really. But Neijing research, classical text research, is our basic science because it tells us what the ideas meant. And so this is really important. It's important, and it's not just my opinion, but there's a method that can be used by other people working in the field. Even if they come up with different understandings, they were using the same approach. And it's an approach that has, you have to be able to say where it came, like in scholarship, you need to be able to say where knowledge comes from. So you, you can come to different conclusions, but I have to be able to say, I came to it from this passage because of this, 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 and that. You know. But anyway, so three examples in the clinic. So Shen is one. So the definition of Shen, if you do the classical text archaeology, the current one, is that Shen is a, it's not the human spirit. That's a secondary manifestation of a deeper definition. But Shen is actually a part of the fabric of space-time. And it, it's a certain, it's, a, it's, a, it's an aspect of space-time in which the normal breathing seasonal patterns of yin and yang that can be measured are not present. It's transcendent in a certain way. In when yin and yang come into balance, like when they're doing that tango dance, you know, or in your body when things are balanced, it shen the dimension of shen illuminates as a as a transcendent form of illumination, which is the basis of life, which we call shen ming. So in the Neijing, it says. It doesn't say the heart emanates Shen. It says it emanates Shen Ming, right? Um, So that means like in a certain way, you'll see it as an illumination. That's in your heart. They also thought it was the same thing, the same when you look at the night sky and you see the lights, they also thought that was Shen Ming. And a star, you can also see that as kind of, it happens when the force of gravity and and expansion come into a certain state and all of a sudden this light turns on and then there's a whole different world where atoms are being made and things like that. If the basis of medicine is Shen, then all the um, things I do with my acupuncture needles, 
I am irrigating rivers of the body, which are the blood vessels, which were the original channels. And why am I doing that? Well, blood circulation is fine. That's good. It makes nourishment and so forth, takes away waste. But I'm not doing it primarily for that. I'm doing it because the blood vessels are the emissaries of the heart. And the blood carries what? Shen Ming. And so like if I'm working with cancer or a diseased area of any kind, the main thing I'm doing is restoring the rivers to the area so that the illumination can return to the area so the body can remake itself upon its original template. So that is a very different way of doing acupuncture, for example. So you're looking to bring Shen illumination into a portion of the the system, the human body, where it's lacking. Right. So example, take a hysterectomy scar or something like that. And that's a place, and diseased tissue has certain qualities. One is it loses its space. So whenever you feel diseased tissue, it's lost this space where things move through it in a certain way. So scars are like that. And so one of the consequences of that is it impairs tissue breathing and the vitality of the person and it disrupts, you know, uh, circulation and so forth. How are we going to treat that? We're going to take needles of the right size and we're going to put them at the edge of the scar at the margin between the dead tissue that has no space and the living tissue that has blood and shen, right? And I'm not going to put the needle in the scar because there's nothing there to work with, right? I'm going to put it at the boundary so that it opens up a space so that more blood can begin to flow into the scar and bring Shen Ming back into the area. And that light has the original template of the body. So when we, when we look at a scar and we do a good treatment, it's not just that it gets smaller, it's that the body's remaking itself according to its original pattern, which is miraculous, right? Right. In the same way that if you cut off your fingertip in the kitchen, when it grows back, the lines in your finger of your fingerprint grow right back as well, even though you sliced them off. Yeah, I didn't know that, but that would be similar. The thing it is that's so amazing about this, it doesn't just seem to be true for scars. It seems to be true in diseases like cancer, you know. I was wondering about that because cancer, okay, scars, there's like, you can't get through it, but cancer has something in it. It's just really disorganized, I would suspect. How are scars and cancer different in this respect, and, and how would you treat them differently? Big question. Yeah. Um, so scars are kind of, you know, dense dead areas of connective tissue and so forth. They just don't have much blood circulation. They're kind of inert. and They're like a food desert. <laughs> yeah, something like that. And tumors are a whole different thing. Number one, you should, probably shouldn't be using these techniques to treat cancer without experience. It is challenging and takes experience and so forth, et cetera, et cetera. But cancer has been one of the main focuses of my profession over the last 20 years, 20, 30 years. Um, and the new model of cancer is that tumors arise in the body's ecology in places where the breathing patterns and the shen illumination circulation has been disrupted. So like in the Neijing, the, if you go back into that first world, the world behind the world where all the patterns are, the thing that's moving in the clouds, they all originate from a deep tendency of the universe to move in cyclical patterns. For example, you want to go back to the beginning of the universe. It's all 
Imagine it's all black. There's no space time. There's no motion. And then something started to move for whatever reason. We don't know why. It could have moved in a bunch of different ways. It could have gone like linearly off in one direction or could just be totally chaotic and random. But for whatever reason, and perhaps because cyclical motion is the most efficient motion in the universe, kind of breath motion, because half the time it's moving, half the time it's resting, um, it starts to move, it starts to rock. As soon as it starts to rock, we have a fabric of space-time, the name of which is chi. Chi doesn't mean energy originally. It meant the water through which motion moves through or the fabric through which things move through. So you have this deep tendency of motion, and we call that breath that's at the heart of the universe yin and yang. So yang is when it moves out, yin is when it moves back, right? When yang moves out, it also creates change and transformation. That means that whenever the universe breathes in or expands, a world of order is created. And whenever that breath is let go, that world is dissolved and regenerated. That's really important because if it was, wasn't that way, the breath couldn't keep moving. So the names for those kinds of transformation in Chinese um, texts were bian and hua. You probably heard those terms. So bian means the outgoing breath of the universe when it's creating a world. And hua means the breaking down of that world and the regeneration of the next breath. So like now, when we look around the world around us, we are in hua transformation times. We've overbuilt the world so much that nature invokes a counterbalancing pattern to break things down so that it can breathe again, essentially. But anyway, to get that's another story. If you're looking at the tissue, it's also bien and huang all the time. Your tissues are breathing, your liver's breathing, your, your lung is one aspect of breath, but your whole body breathes. Cellular respiration, cranial motions, visceral motions, etc. And that's in a tensegrity, which means it's all related, all the parts are related, and they're all breathing in their own way, but it's one kind of breathing hole. And they're all breathing around the center point of coherence, which you need, otherwise it's just random, and that's called your heart or the light in your heart. So everything's moving around that vantage point. As long as it's doing that, when it inspires, it's being fed and nursed, and then you get to release things and things are happy. If you impede that tensegrity system by binding it in one place, that's called a block or an obstruction pattern or a B syndrome. That's usually silent clinically, but over on the other side of that breathing system, something's going to go offline. It's not going to breathe as well. And that is the prerequisites for tumor formation. So you can have a problem in one place of your body, but way over on the other side, something starts not to breathe well in your breast, in your colon, in your liver. And what I found out working with cancer is there's different kinds of cancers. Some are pretty aggressive. But for the most part, cancer is a really lazy disease. It's really lazy. Meaning when I look at someone with lung cancer or you know liver cancer, whatever, breast cancer, and I take their history, I can see that the patterns went offline usually about 20 years ago. And then over time, you know, just nothing was treated, nothing was treated, nothing was treated, nothing was treated. And finally, the, you know, a tumor arose. Can you give me can you give me an example of what might have happened 20 years prior that went offline that then eventually turns into this lazy malignancy? 
that becomes not lazy at the end. It's even lazy at the end. It's just like we're not treating the cause of it at all, you know? Uh, it's just it can't help itself in a certain way. It's kind of interesting. Well, here's what's fascinating about, you know, I was saying this aging work is, it's like walking into a cave and seeing a whole different world, and it's like a completely different model of Chinese medicine. It's lovely, beautiful, etc., one of the really interesting things that from the Neijing, in Neijing nature-based medicine, it's created a new model of human illness about, around all these ideas. And it's the idea that you are a biological coherence of breath and you're moving in a field, which is nature and the cosmos. And as long as you're breathing in that field, you're pretty good. And how do you know you're breathing in that field? Because all your blood vessels are flowing well, all the rivers are flowing. So that's kind of the key indicator. When any human illness, this is like big statements, all human illnesses begin with a primary impairment of biological coherence, which means breath motion, right? So something has to stop breathing as well or working as well. That's way before you see anything that's like an illness. Here's the fascinating thing, Michael. It turns out there's only like seven causes of that. So when you look at the DSM-3 and you see all those illnesses, 98% of those illnesses are the results of a pattern of impairment of breath, not the disease itself. So hypertension, cancer, infectious disease, we say those are the diseases. Those are the results of impairments we don't know how to speak about and we don't know that they exist. They're unseen. What are those seven causes of illness? There's two prenatal and five postnatal. This is like immensely helpful in the clinic, by the way. What's a pre, what are the two prenatal causes? One is family lines, means things that run in your family. Everybody has cystic cysts in their kidneys and you have them too. That's an obstruction pattern, a problem of biological coherence. The second one is things that can happen during pregnancy. You know, you get a congenital heart defect. There's something, emotional trauma your mother has, something as you're developing. That can cause an impairment of breath motion. All the rest are postnatal. How do you know that's a postnatal one? You ask the person a very simple question. Were you ever healthy or were you sick from the beginning? And then people fall into two categories. They say, I was born sick. I was in the hospital. I was in the NICU, you know, and then I had all these problems when I was a child. That's a prenatal cause. But other people will say, I was fine until I was eight. I was fine until I was 15. I was fine until I was 22. Right, right. That totally makes sense. I'm often people in my clinic, when they say they've got something, I'll ask them, how long have you had that? And sometimes they can say, eh, you know, the past 10 years or whatever. And sometimes they say, well, I've always had it. And when they say I've always had it, I'm like, always like when you were five, you weren't sleeping well. They'll be like, oh, no, no, that didn't happen until I was 17. Okay. Now, now we've got it in space time that is postnatal. And we're curious about what happened around age 17. But Yes, it's very curious when they say, yeah, I was just an anxious kid. Like, oh, maybe there is something. This is a really important question. Were you ever healthy? If not, when? And what we're looking in nature, nature-based medicine, that's called the inflection point of the illness. That means where, where your life went, started on a healthy trajectory, and then something, an event occurred, a very specific event and then your life went on to another illness trajectory. And basically you weren't as healthy and then all these things started to happen. You got sick, you got a diagnosis, you had a surgery, then you got another illness. Now we're 30 years down the road and you've had five surgeries and you're presenting with such and such disease and we think it's all about that. 
The interesting thing is that the postnatal causes, there's only a handful. And the first one in the Naging is the main illness category of the Naging. It's called guest host illnesses. And guest host illnesses are diseases caused by things not of you inhabiting your body. And in the Naging, the primary cause was climate, cold, wind, damp. I mean, the Naging is a book about climate illness in a big way. So something comes into you. It's not a thought. It's not a metaphor. It's not a virus, you know, an old term for a virus. It means an actual piece of damp, wind, or cold moves through your collateral beds, moves into your system, flows around in your rivers, ends up in your left kidney, and it starts to cause an impairment of the impairment of biological coherence or tissue breathing. And naging surgery, act, traditional surgery, acupuncture surgery, was all about how to take those things out. That was the original use of needles, like how to find it, what technique to use, what, and which of the nine needles to use. It was all surgery, essentially. How do you get it out, essentially? What's interesting is now in modern times, we have whole other categories of things in you that are not supposed to be there. And they are like chemicals and chemotherapy and wildfire smoke and um, things like that. That's a whole nother issue, issue for another podcast because it's a huge problem um, for us. But that's a cause of human illness. And then there's a third kind of things that are of you, in you that are not of you, and they're called overgrowth pathogens. And that means we would call those things infectious disease. So it means like COVID. But we would not say COVID caused your illness. We'd say your ecology changed so that COVID could flourish. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jingwell points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of chi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. This is this is so interesting because that this gets back to the whole germ theory like do germs cause illness or is it that our environment changes and now germs have this lovely place to live like covid for example we there's a an illness triangle we look at and it, it includes first of all the person's ecology because the naging says when your ecology is good it's breathing the blood's flowing you're not likely to be in you know invaded by anything the second is the environment you're living in. We call that in the Neijing the wuyunuchi, which means how the heavens and the earth are turning in patterns. And in some patterns, 
epidemic diseases happen and then they go away and so forth. And the third thing is the actual thing that's overgrowing. You know, like all microorganisms are not the same and some are more virulent and dangerous. So it's this equation of three things. But the important thing is we don't focus on killing the thing. We focus on restoring the ecology. By the way, if it's a if it's a kind of an unstable situation like someone going on a ventilator, we might also use an, an antibiotic or an antiviral drug to lessen the load of the pathogen, but that's not to kill the pathogen. That's to help the body restore its ecology. You know, and that's like a critical difference that changes everything. For example, if you Think about it, an illness like tuberculosis, where you know a quarter of the world's population has tuberculosis, has been you know been infected by it or exposed to it. Um, a lot of people in tubercu having tuberculosis live in tuberculosis hospitals where the drugs have stopped working, and they're just sitting there basically waiting to see if they're going to live or die. You know, um, and they can live there for months and months sometimes. And what would it be like if we came in and added this third component? Like, let's restore your ecology. Well, guess what happens when you restore the ecology? The infection usually goes away. I remember like one of the very first cases I saw after I started studying with my teacher, Dr. Cinellini, it was up at the uh, medical school and I was on staff there and a, a patient come in, she was overweight with diabetes. She had had a bad fracture at her knee and had reconstructive surgery on her knee and they had to do vascular surgery to connect the arteries and it was a huge mess and her blood sugars went way out of control. They did a fasciotomy, which is where they cut the leg open um, to, for swelling. And that had become infected with three um, nosocomial infections, really kind of nasty hospital-based infections. And I went in to see her on Wednesday and they were gonna cut off her leg on Friday. And they said, can you do anything? Her family got me in there. And what can I do? So I started to work on opening up the rivers through the hip and the knee and the ankle just to restore the normal blood circulation. I made up a poultice with some, you know, good herbs that treat infection. And I soaked them in a, blank, a towel and I just threw it in the wound like that. By Friday, it looked a lot better, you know. And by 10 days later, she was discharged with her leg. Now, that was a case where the hospital bill was probably $400,000 or something. They had exhausted all of their techniques. I came in with needles that probably cost like under a dollar and herbs that cost $20. And she left with her leg. So this is like how important these ideas are. Um, they're huge. These naging ideas... Honestly, working in the field, one of the problems is that the ideas are so large, they don't let you sleep. Because you, you just kind of stumble into a vista and you go, oh my God, if we did that. You know, for example, after patients get chemotherapy, a large percent of them never have their life back. They are tired, they can't think straight, they have post-chemo syndrome. It seems to be almost entirely correlated to the chemo trapping and load they have in their tissues. For this, in terms of this guest host illness model. And when we remove it, they get off the table. They don't have that. If we did nothing else but change that equation, you know, or I was just at a meeting. Ed, I'm, I'm thinking of a number of patients I have 
When did this fatigue begin? When, when, did, when did you notice you couldn't quite keep your thoughts together? Oh, it was after the chemo. When was that? It was 25 years ago. Oh, no, it can be 90 years ago. You know, and how do I know? I mean, we've had a lot of experience with this now, working with people. But I remember one of the first patients. There's this thing we call it with gastrosomosis, is a process called sequestration and compaction. So when something comes into the body, it will either throw it away, throw it out, or it'll go deeper, or there will be a stalemate. And in the stalemate, it compacts it and sequesters it, and it can last forever. Yeah. Where does that get compacted and sequestered into? Well, it seems to be happen everywhere, um, but connective tissue seems to have a big part of it. Um, and so it almost treats it like a foreign body. And it also occurs in these vascular reservoirs, these virtual reservoirs, where if you stop the tissue bleeding, breathing, excuse me, all of a sudden there's a big kind of virtual reservoir in your tissue that's not moving. And it ends up kind of dumping, a lot of things go in the air. But I think of a, a person I saw um, years ago who had a, a bad shoulder fracture when they were like eight, and he was about 60, 65, 70. And I started to work on the bone obstruction pattern and I put in the needles and we did the bone treatments and all of a sudden the room filled up with the smell of ether, you know, which we don't have in this country anymore. And I was like, uh, where is this? It was a very strong smell. We had to open the windows, et cetera. And I was like, where did you get exposed? Where's this ether coming from? And he said, well, when I broke my arm, I was in Kenya and I was treated at a military hospital and they used ether. Now, just in terms of like one of those big ideas that changes everything, think think about the current model of pharmaco, pharmacology and pharmacodynamics. When I, if you get chemo, what does your doctor tell you? I'll give it to you on Monday. By Thursday, it's going to be out of your body because the half life is twenty four hours, something like that. Now, when we give medications or expose people to chemicals, things like that, we are responsible for knowing. Oh, that's going to limit your life for the neck until you die. A century, it could do that. It, the implications are very large for this. This is all contained in our tradition, so it's kind of mind-boggling. The other causes of the illness, by the way, one is emotional disease. I mean, that can also cause um, serious illness. Food and nutrition is one. Trauma of, and surgery, things like that, are one. And poisons are one like a snake bite. And that, you know, we're still working on that as a research definition, but it seems that all human illnesses are caused by seven different causes, most of which we're totally unaware of. And most of which can be fixed easily by things like needles and herbs that don't cost anything. And what we're looking to do is restore the natural ecology so that the breath goes all the way through the system. Right. So how do we actually do this? You sound like an old school osteopath, my friend. Oh, we are exactly on the same page. You know, like Andrew still said, the, the, river, the blood vessel is supreme. You know, we are exactly on the same page. How do we do this in, in real life? Like it's hard to work with light, you know, directly, you know. Uh, well, we work with rivers. So the second thing, you know, you asked, what is what is the translation change? Well, very early, it became very clear that what we call channels originally was this very intricate and beautiful description of the three-dimensional blood circulation. Very accurate, like 2,000, 
years ahead of its time compared to what was in the West, you know, way, way ahead of its time, like very intricate and detailed once you start to look into it. And they were compared to rivers. They said, you know, in nature, there's rivers. They're created by patterns. In the body, they're rivers. Make, made the same pattern. Um, they can be in flowing patterns or they can be in counterflowing patterns, et cetera, et cetera, which means turbulence or inflammation, we call it in Western medicine. So when we're looking at a person, what we're actually looking at is that the body's divided up into 12 main watersheds. And a watershed is an area of ecology it has its own unique features, and it's defined by the flowing of a primary river, like the Rio Grande is a watershed in the Grand Canyon. And it has its own climate and animals and plants. And so the river is primary for that watershed. And the health of the watershed is seen by the flow of the river also, how they interact. Um, what are the watersheds called in, in Chinese medicine? Upper Taiyin, Lower Taiyin, Upper Yangming, Lower Yangming, or now the lung channel and the stomach channel. And we've lost all that richness. Yes, yes. When we keep in mind the full name of a watershed of a channel, we have access to so much more information. Yeah. And, and a watershed, it's not just the river, but it includes like the sinew system of the river, which was like they're the plants of the watershed. And the collateral beds, which are the side streams of the river, and the skin, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And each of them, they're not the same, like lines on the skin. Like the world of the lower Yangming watershed, which is now the stomach channel, is a very different world than the upper Xiaoyang watershed. So we're learning like the different ecological features. Then in the clinic, what we're doing is ecological restoration. So the, the Neijing was original, using the, um, the nine needles to irrigate rivers and restore ecology. So uh, we will look at ecologies, and I think we're going to do a skill on this, a 15-minute skill talk on this. I'm going to talk about surface mapping. But we'll go down the watershed, and we'll start to mark off all the things we find in the ecology. Uh, and then we'll look deeper in certain places. And then we'll make a plan, like, why is this not flowing well? And it's often an irrigation issue, like it's blocked up here, so it's not going down there. And then we'll figure out what tool we need and what kind of technique. And then we're restoring ecology to restore rivers, but to restore the flow of light. So, for example, in the Neijing, there's one definition of health, and it comes from Suen, excuse me, Lingxu chapter 9. And it's, it means the ping ren. You probably heard that term. It means the balanced person. And ping is like a tree that's balanced, you know, and open. And so if you ask what health is, it's ping ren. And so here's what it says in, in Lingxu chapter 9. It says that the, the so-called balanced person, the ping ren, means that a person is no illness, has no illness. Bu bing, there's no illness. Bu bing zhe, having no illness, means that the changes of the Mai rivers, the blood rivers, at the river mouth, which is, which is at your wrists, and human welcoming, which is at your neck, correspond to the changes of the seasons. So, for example, what is pulse diagnosis for us? It's river assessment. It means that what is above and below correspond to what is leaving and arriving. So, like, spring is arriving, winter is departing, etc., cetera, etc., cetera that the rivers, the Mai rivers, the blood rivers of the six watersheds stir and move without restriction. So they're moving freely. 
that the patterns of cold and warmth that move through the roots and branches of the body are mutually preserved and managed properly, that the physical form and the blood and the chi are all in balance and they don't fight with one another. That's a balanced person. And that means you're healthy. So as long as we get the rivers set, all this esoteric stuff, we're good. And that's what we do in the clinic all day is get the rivers right. River management. Chinese medicine, Corps of Engineers. It's a very hopeful thing. Like, I, There's a protocol way of handling medicine, which is you see things and then you pick certain points and herbs. That's mostly what we're doing, which is fine and it helps a lot of people. But I have to say, for me, this is much more deeply beautiful and hopeful also because when you, for example, if you re-irrigate a river, like in this patient's leg that was going to be cut off, and you see the blood start to flow into the leg, you're watching like nature restore itself in front of you and you're a participant in that. And it's like so rewarding. Whereas I remember in the point protocol days, it was always like a Hail Mary pass. Like I, I'm supposed to put in these points, use the serps, go away. And then it, when they come back, I make a prayer. Did it work? And they say, yeah. And I'm like, wow, that's amazing. This, I'm, I'm caught by the breath piece. I think I have been for a long time now. Um, partly because of some teachers I've had and just ways I've had of looking at things. And the idea that where the breath is moving, where things are moving properly, the system just takes care of itself. That's the way the universe works. If things get off in some way, it's like a dead zone like you were talking about. And troubles tend to accumulate in those dead zones. You know, if you look at an eddy in a river, this backflow that's not going down the stream, you'll see that garbage collects in there and trees collect in there and, you know, junk. Right? Out in the Pacific Ocean, there's a... I've never seen it. I've actually never seen a picture of it, but I've heard of it. That giant flotilla of plastic. The tire. Yeah. Yeah. I, have you ever seen pictures of that? Uh, yes. Yes, I have. I have not, but I've heard about it. But same sort of thing. You have an area where things aren't moving, and you were describing this as well with with the pathogens that come in and, and collect and grow. They, they, they kind of head to the bad side of town. So all these things about the cosmos and space-time, they all get a little esoteric, but it all comes back to just that thing. Is it breathing or not? Is the river flowing or not? If you go back to the idea of when we became self-referential beings and all the trouble that's caused us, you know, one of the parts of that is that we think we're separate from nature, you know, and we live in a gated community, kind of nature's out there. It's where we go on the weekend to hike and so forth. But what the nature tells us is there is, you are nature and nature is you and there is no distinction at all. And if you want to thrive more, th make nature thrive, help nature thrive. And also, when we treat our patients and restore their ecology, we are restoring nature, the bigger field of nature. So it has a deeper meaning. Yeah, I think that's true. We're up against this kind of moment in time where we're either going to evolve or perish or live in a world we don't want to, perhaps. And the challenge for that is to navigate these things about self-referential awareness and our tools 
and why do we do things and um, what is our relationship to nature if we can't navigate that we're going to be in big trouble if you go back to the the idea of ai or technology and i said these things are all tools and they can be they're not good or bad they're just tools and if they're serving higher human values they're good what are higher human values well, we could say things like justice and, you know, um, ending discrimination and so forth, all those things. That's great. But those are secondary things. What does it mean? Where do higher human values arise from? They arise in the Neijing point of view from Shen. So ways of being that in increase illumination. And it's what I call illuminative beauty. So there's an, there's like, you can look at, um, social media, you can see people dressed up, um, looking young and fit, whatever. And I call that the less than model of beauty. You look at it and you feel less than, right? And you, like you can't achieve that. Then you look at an older person and they may have wrinkles and scars and be lopsided, but there's a kind of light coming out of their eye and a smile. And I call that illuminative beauty. That's from Shen. So in my 40 years of medical practice, I've arrived at this final conclusion that Everything I'm doing in the clinic is to promote the expression of illuminative beauty. It's not to take away, you know, symptoms and signs. That happens along the way. But the reason I see my patient is to help them express illuminative beauty. That's where I've come to. And that's all based on aging thinking. My friend, that seems like a great place to put a pin in it for the moment. There's a lot more to talk about, and, and we can come back and do that another time. And, um, you know, it's a fun thing about the podcast at, at this point. We get to come and visit with each other and let people listen in. A lot more to say. And, and of course, if people are interested in what you have to offer, there's information on the show notes page. That kind of goes without saying these days. That practice of helping to promote illuminated beauty that just seems like a great way to go out into the day and if you think about that other idea about it's we are self-aware but the world is not about us and how we participate in the grandness of the universe is makes all the difference is it all about what's on my phone or do you look up at the night sky and say i was created by these patterns i am a part of it that's a whole different way of living says a chill down my spine as it should Boy, wow, looking up at the sky. <laughs> All right, my friend. Well, until next time then. I look forward to it. I suspect part of my draw to East Asian medicine is the way it recognizes nature as the ground of our being, that we are a part of nature, not apart from it. And being a child of the 60s and 70s, I rather acquired the unfortunate habit of fetishizing nature, which is easy to do when you're not living on a farm or living a life where you eat what you kill or you don't eat. As a human between heaven and earth, I am still working out how to get through the day because nature, it gives everything to us and then also takes everything away. Love and loss, gain and diminishment, sorrow and joy, well-being and disease, 
Living within the rhythms of nature does not mean that we avoid the suffering that accompanies the ebbs and the flows. Perhaps the troubles penetrate all the more deeply, as do the gifts of love and connection. This leaves me with a question that I've turned over in my mind for a long time now about just what it is that's healing and what is health. It gets tricky, especially when dealing with the decline and the withering side of the cycle. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community.